This week's guest is more than a renowned physician. He's a man who's faced the turbulence of addiction while building a luminous medical career. Born into a lineage of medical excellence, he's delivered over 14,000 newborns and is a devoted father of three children himself. Despite his accomplishments, he grappled with alcohol and drug addiction. He'll share the hard-earned wisdom that led him to self-forgiveness and making amends. His commitment goes beyond medicine. He serves on the boards of two local foundations and donates his expertise to women's shelters. A decorated scholar and community servant, he's not just a medical expert, but a living testament to overcoming life's toughest challenges. Buckle up for an all-gas, no-breaks journey with this multifaceted king, warrior, magician, and lover, Dr. Paul Wilkes. You're a man that controls his own destiny, a man that is always in the pursuit of being better. You are in the right place. You are responsible. You are strong. You are a leader. You are a force for good. Gentlemen, you are the Alpha, and this is the Alpha Quorum. Welcome back to the Alpha Quorum Show. Brad Singletary here. I'm excited to continue our series on addiction and addiction recovery. The man that I have with me here today is just a local hero, just a legend. He's he's done some amazing things. I'll let him talk about his career and those kinds of things later. But I just want to give you. My impression of this guy is just one of the best men that I've ever met. I've met many of his family members. We have some mutual professional contacts. And I am just very excited to have Paul Wilkes here today who can share some of his story um, that is just filled with wisdom and failure and all the things that go in between that. So, Paul, introduce yourself to us, man. Thanks, buddy. That means a lot coming from you. I have um, tremendous respect for you. You've helped me. You've helped my family members. You've helped Mutual friends, so um, big compliment coming from you that I've affected your life in some way. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Paul Wilkes. Lived here in Las Vegas since 1971. Um, population was about 125,000 when we moved out here. Tiny, tiny. Um, so since you showed up, Las Vegas is 10x. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 20, yeah, I mean, it's about right. 2.4 million wow. now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of that is because I moved here and a lot of people, <laughs> they thought this is the place. Now they were like, if that five-year-old kid's going to Vegas, I'm going to Vegas too. <laughs> that guy's badass. We're going where he goes. So yeah, I take a lot of credit for the growth of Vegas. Um, yeah. Moved out here in uh, 1971 with my family. Um, Raised in Vegas, Vegas kid, um, lived in a lot of different places, but always ended up back here. Vegas is home. So you're a physician here. Talk about, I don't even know the proper terminology. I know what you do, but I don't know the name of that. Talk, talk about what you do and, and how your career has evolved over time. Yeah. So, um, I went to college in California, uh, freshman year. UCLA, then um, t- 
took a year off, came back to Vegas, lived here and worked here. Uh, my freshman year in UCLA, I got pretty into drinking and realized, you know, um, if I wanted to be a doctor, I wasn't going to be able to party a lot. I was going to have to get serious. I didn't know if I had it in me, if the partying was going to be more important than the, than the ultimate goal. So I moved back here to um, Vegas, slipped for a year, ended up going back to Pepperdine University in Malibu, graduated, and then went to medical school up in Reno. Um, graduated and did my training in obstetrics and gynecology in Las Vegas, the University Medical Center. And um, after that, went and lived in Denver for three years. I did a postdoctoral fellowship in what's called maternal fetal medicine which is the subspecialty of high-risk pregnancy. And um, when I was in Denver, I had a lot of great job opportunities when I finished up there and um, took a risk, came back to Vegas. It was the riskiest offer I received uh, with the lowest pay, lowest guaranteed pay, but the highest potential upside. So I moved back to Las Vegas in 2002 and joined uh, Joe Adishak, Dr. Adishak, and we started to build Desert Perinatal Associates over, um, over two decades. And um, when it moved back, there were two doctors, four employees, and a 1,200-square-foot office. And just by um, being committed to excellence, showing up early, staying late, working hard while we were there, we now have four locations total of about 60,000 square feet of office space. We have 140 employees. We have eight providers and we're in the process of recruiting two more. So really just through diligence and commitment. And um, I think more than anything, passion, you know, loving what I do, but anything that makes a pregnancy high risk, either from the unborn baby standpoint or the mom standpoint, they kind of end up with us over at uh, Desert Perinatal. So our audience is a bunch of men, and I wonder what is what does perinatal mean? So perinatal really is the time around birth. It's either Latin or Greek. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know the difference. But um, the time around birth and what it is, um, it's just caring for an unborn baby and a mother and the challenge really is that oftentimes what's best for the mother is not what's best for the baby. And so we have to figure out a way to kind of take care of the mom the best we can to get that baby as mature as possible in the womb before we have to kind of pull the trigger and deliver. And one of the things I've really enjoyed is I remember when I was having children, I would go into my wife's OB appointments with her and the doctor would come in and he'd sit on his stool. I'd be sitting next to my wife. He would make eye contact with her. He would talk to her. He would ask her questions. He would get up and he would leave. And sometimes I would leave thinking, you know, why was I even here? I, I remember that. And um, so I'm really big on involving the father of the child. Um, or the mother of the child. I, I take care of uh, a lot of lesbian couples who have done donor sperm. And so I, I find it very important to involve everyone who's in the room, whether it's 
you know, a couple's second baby and they bring their three-year-old in. I always like to kind of involve the three-year-old. If a grandmother or grandfather is there, just make it a really cool family experience. One of the things that you've shared with me before is just how important the, the kind of the customer service part of that is, is just loving your people, giving them everything that you have, all of your focus and attention the best that you can. And that's something that you've prided yourself on. Um, that's impressive. You know, there's, there's so much of people talk about the medical care in Las Vegas is <laughs> this is the worst place ever. But what I hear from you from many, many, many people you've probably been involved with some of my own family members and their deliveries. If I went through the names, you could probably filter through and and, and know that you've worked. I mean, so many people, how many babies have you delivered? (laughs) 14,000. A lot. (laughs) 14,000 times you you're bringing life into this world in the moment of that happening. That's just, that that's gotta be just, I mean, to me, that's one of the most special sacred like things that a human being can do is to be there and to do what you do. And you're taking the tough cases. These are the high risk pregnancies where there may be problems and so forth. You've probably seen some unfortunate things at times. But let's talk about your your road to addiction and the road to recovery. Um, One of our last guests talked about when he was considering whether or not he was an alcoholic, he thought that was, th- those are the bums on the street and that those are people that really were hopeless. And he wasn't in that category because he had, you know, a solid family and a good marriage and a, and a decent income and so forth. But um, here you are this, you know, top of the food chain in, in your profession here and have really done some pretty big things across the, the country. I mean, you, you've, you've said before that your practice here is just one of the most unique um, things going, but how did you get to addiction? How did you realize that? What did you do? What's the process been from then forward? Yeah. Um, boys, I, I certainly connect with the idea that when things look really good on the outside, it's tough to come to the conclusion that I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. Um, And I think that's something that I struggled with when I first got into recovery. I went to my first AA meeting in 1986. I'd gotten a, yeah, I'd gotten a DUI after I graduated high school and before I went to college. And one of the things was, you know, you had to go to 90 meetings. Um, which I figured out by about the third meeting that no one was checking the signature. So I just had a bunch of different people sign the paper. Um, yeah, I'm a loophole guy. I'm always looking for the loophole. I know that probably shocks some of the drug addicts and alcoholics out there that I would figure out a way to cheat the system. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in a great family. Mom and dad married for 50 years. Um, grew up in a great neighborhood here in Las Vegas. Dad was a doctor. Mom was a stay-at-home mom and an artist. Um, have an older brother and a younger brother. One's a year older, one's a year younger. My mom had three boys in three years. Um, and then along came my sister five years later. Four kids in the family. Went to church on Sunday. Went out to breakfast afterwards as a family. Hot meal on the table every night, you know, um, never once questioned where I was going to sleep, whether or not I was going to have food, whether or not I was going to go to college. Um, 
whether or not I was going to have clothes on my back. Um, and, and I hear guys in recovery talk about like that first time they got high or got drunk, like everything made sense. They were relaxed. They could make friends. They could talk to girls. I, I never had a problem with that um, aspect of my personality. I had great friends. Um, always got friend zoned with the girls. So I'm not a player. Like, the most beautiful girls in school that everyone wanted to date, like they were my chums. Yeah, terrible. Um, but I remember I was about 12 years old. My dad was having a party and we snuck two whores beers out to the end of the driveway. And I was with two of my buddies. I'm still friends with to this day. Gosh, that's uh, 45 years later. We're still friends. And we opened the first can of beer and I handed it to one kid and he took his sip and grimaced and handed it to the next kid and he took his sip and grimaced and I took a sip and I downed both beers. And I remember my dad finding me passed out in the front yard. Like it was 12. Um, and really from about the age of 12 to maybe 15 or yeah, probably 15. I don't really remember having a history of like drinking or doing drugs or I just, I was a kid. I played sports. I rode my bike in the desert. We built forts, went swimming in the summer. Um, but around 15 or 16, I think my drinking started to escalate. And I did not drink to fit in. I did not drink to feel comfortable in social situations. I did not drink to get courage to go talk to the girl. I drank because I absolutely loved being fucked up. It's that simple. It's fun. It's great. It wasn't an escape. It was just fun. Brad, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they're like, no man, like sponsors and therapists and you got to dig deeper. Where's the pain? Like, what were you, what were you masking? Like, no, I just like being wasted. Okay. And, um, from about the age of 16 to 20, maybe 21, 2021, I was just all gas, no breaks. Like, I went to school. I got good grades. I played on sports teams. I, you know, got into college. I had goals. And at about the age of 20 or 21, my girlfriend at the time, who ended up becoming my wife, and I have three kids with her, um, after a particularly disastrous night at the Elephant Bar on Maryland Parkway uh, here in Vegas, the next morning she came over and she said, I'll still be your friend. I can't be your girlfriend. You're maniac when you drink. And I said, I'll stop drinking. She was like, dude, let's be serious. You don't have an off switch. Um, I said, no, it's you're you're more important to me than drinking. And so I stopped for 12 years. I just stopped. Um, I had been exposed to AA when I got my DUI out of high school. So I knew that AA was out there. But at the time, back in the like mid to late 80s, AA was, you know, dimly lit rooms with a bunch of old grouchy dudes chain smoking. Um, talking about how they had burned it down. And I didn't relate. I knew I couldn't drink. But AA wasn't 
it wasn't going to work for me because I would sit in those rooms and I would go, I'm not an alcoholic. Like these dudes have some problems. I'm not an alcoholic. Um, so I quit for 12 years and I went to college and I went to medical school and I did my residency, got through my postdoctoral fellowship and uh, signed my contract for my first job. I went to, I was a delegate for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and I went to a meeting in Hawaii to talk about, you know, kind of national policy and how it affects people in my um, profession. And we were at a dinner and they, they came around, they said, you want red wine or white wine? I said, white wine. I mean, no thought. So I'm having fish. I'll get white wine. I remember reading somewhere that white wine goes with fish and red wine, red wine with steak. And um, I went back that night and drained the mini bar. Like even the stuff that you go, who drinks cream de mint? Right? Drained the mini bar. Went out, floated around in the pool the next day drinking a double 151 Mai Tais, a lot of heat on those. Somehow made it to the airport. I remember um, the pilot saying, we're now back over the continental United States. And I rang my call button and I said, can I get some more vodka? And she was like, no, you can't. You've literally like emptied the first class cabin. All of it. And uh, I landed and I, I, Went home and I told my wife, you know, I drank while I was in Hawaii. She had not seen me drink for 12 years. And she didn't believe me. She goes, no, you're screwing around. I go, no, I drank. She said, how did it go? And I go, it went really well. I think I can drink normally. Like, what? You drank the plane out of vodka? And you, of course, I didn't tell her that. And um, off to the races, kind of a slow burn until it wasn't. Um, and then the last kind of the last six months of that run, which probably lasted two and a half, three years, um, you know, when things got bad, I ended up divorced. Um, I ended up not having regular contact with my children who, you know, my kids, I love them. They're like, my kids are my whole world, but other things were more important, like drinking. Um, the last six months of that run, I discovered that if I did some cocaine, I could drink more, you know? Um, and then in 2005, went to rehab for 60 days, shut it down and, you know, went to rehab. Came back from rehab, actually got into a physician's assistant program, signed up for it, wasn't mandatory. Um, did that for five years. And uh, when that five years was up, signed up for another five years. Um, and when that five years was up, I was like, I'm kind of sick of calling every morning to see if I got a pee in a cup. And it's now been 10 years. I did 12 years before. Now it's been 10. And eventually the guy that ran that program, that was a dear friend of mine, it really kind of kept me on the beam. He died and uh, things went a little sideways. You know, it was like, 
I don't know if it was lack of accountability. I don't know if it was um, grief. I'm pretty sure it's because I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Like, I don't need a reason. Um, and I still, through all of that, maintained a pretty crispy exterior. Looked real good from the outside. So in that physician assistance program, you had to, you, you went through 10 years of daily phone calls to make sure that you weren't using. Yeah. You would call in the morning and it would say you're, you've been chosen, you know, you'd enter your number, you've been chosen. And I had to call a guy and he'd come over to wherever I was and do a chain of custody urine. Wow. Yeah. So you talked about going to rehab. How did that happen? Did you voluntarily do that? Was there some trouble? Did a spouse or loved one say, you know, look, you got to do this? Or, or how did you get in the door there? Yeah, my uh, medical partner and best friend um, said, you know, I don't even remember what day it was. It was probably like a, a Wednesday. I do remember what day it was. Um, it was a Wednesday. He said, I need to talk to you tomorrow, which would have been a Thursday. And he said, can you meet me at the office at whatever noon? Um, and I said, yeah, no problem. So, you know, of course, Wednesday night, I behaved like a maniac. And Thursday, I woke up at about 1145 and I called in and said, hey, you know, I don't even remember. My car won't start or some bullshit. Um, I'm just going to call in. He goes, no, I'll wait for you. And uh, I eventually made it. And he and one of our other really good friends who's in recovery uh, basically did an intervention. He handed me a, a sheet and he said, you know, this, this came through one of the medical journals. And it says like 12 signs that you may be having problems with alcohol or drugs. And he filled it out for me and like 11 of 12 he checked the box and I think the only reason he didn't check the 12 box was because he didn't know, but I went 12 for 12. It's the best I've ever done on a test. hundred percent knocked it out of the park without even studying. And I said, yeah, you're right. And he, he was ready for a fight. I mean, he had articles and journals and consequences. And I was like, no, you're right. I think I need to go. So I went away for uh, what's typically called a four-day evaluation. And um, at the end of the four-day evaluation, they said, no, you got to stay for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, they said, you got to stay for another 30. So you talk about acting like a maniac. I mean, I just wonder what some of those things were. What were the problems associated with drinking and using what what did you do what kinds of things were you uh if you're what if you're comfortable talking about that yeah i was just i was unavailable you know i mean if i knew that i had to work if i knew that i had to be available i'd shut it down i'd be available um but if i had some time off, you know, I'd start at my house and get in my car and drive down to this strip and find, you know, this is a long time ago. Um, but you know, I'd find a 
restaurant and I go to a restaurant, get a dinner and, you know, drinks before, bottle of wine with, drinks after. And then I'd go to a, one of the, you know, nightclubs on the strip and get a table and get, you know, just nonsense. And, you know, I could leave my house on a Friday and come back on a Sunday. I mean, I could just go. And, um, you know, my personality type is when I'm going to do something, it's all gas, no break. It's, it's, I'm doing it. And that is a big asset, I think, in most men's lives, you know, that, that pursuit of excellence. I want to be the best, not second best, not top 10, like the guy. Um, but it's a real liability when it comes to substance abuse, because that part of my brain that tells me, say when I'm, say when I'm working and that part of my brain that tells me you're tired, you're hungry, your back hurts, you haven't slept in a day, you're whatever, fill in the blank. My brain says, nobody cares. Go harder. It works for me in the gym, right? It works for me in building a business. Golf game. Golf, yeah. It's all, it, it works in a lot of places unless you're using a destructive substance. So how did this affect like family and, you know, your, your personal relationships? Well, not shockingly, um, you know, drug and alcohol use carries with it a lot of secrecy a lot of dishonesty. And um, I heard someone say in a meeting the other day, we lose trust in buckets and we gain it back in thimbles. And that goes for, you know, my wife at the time, my children, like you tell your son, I'm going to be there too. And he's sitting on the curb and you don't show up. That's damaging. A lot of hurt there. Um, and even when I was present, I wasn't present. They, they pick up on that. Um, so I, I think I fractured a lot of those relationships with the dishonesty that goes along with, with hiding, you know, and it was all fear-based. It was just all fear-based. And I, I can trace that part of my story back to the way I was raised. You know, like I'd bring home five A's and a B plus. And my dad's first question was, why'd you get the B plus? You know, I was, I was, uh, for lack of a better word, like, I think I was taught from a very young age that that good is not good enough and great is not even good enough. Excellence. You're getting there. You're getting there. And I think there was a lot of shame in my addiction in that pretty much Anything I had ever put my mind to, I was able to do, you know, I, um, 
I remember a buddy that I grew up with, uh, really great guy, still lives in Vegas. We, we spend some time together. And I remember him asking me like, Hey, you want to train for the 5k Turkey trot or whatever? And I was like, no, we're going to do the Las Vegas marathon. Like women, children will do a 5k. We're doing a marathon. Now, I had no idea what that entailed. I was like, why would you do a 5K when there's a 26.2 mile race? You know? And um, I was able to fight through all of, the, all of the things that happen when you're trying to achieve a certain goal that's difficult. I was able to fight through that and succeed through sheer will, except addiction. I couldn't figure out a way around it. What was your most kind of a humbling moment? Can you think of a time when you just really, and I don't know if it's hitting bottom or just really crumbling into feeling like, you know, life had become unmanageable and, and the moment that you just accepted. I know exactly where I was standing, what I was doing, when I realized that um, I had to surrender completely. And my wife had been kind of questioning me about, you know, are you doing drugs? Are you drinking? And I'm no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, despite all the evidence. No, I'm not, you know, try and get her to feel bad for even thinking that. And she just caught me. And the look on her face at that time was my rock bottom. And I'm not talking about my rock bottom with addiction. I'm talking about my rock bottom in life. I'm talking about um, never before and hopefully never again will I feel that indescribable sense of demoralization and shame and and self-hatred that this woman who has given me so much and all she ever has in return is for me to be honest like tell me what you're going through we'll figure it out together Chin up, chest out, we'll strap on our armor, we're a team. That look in her eyes was something that I will never, ever be able to survive again. That was my rock bottom. So what'd you do from there? Went to meeting. Went to meeting. Um, walked into a meeting and it's, it's probably the most honest I've ever been about my addiction. And, uh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something along the lines of, I am completely screwed because I cannot live another day 
with alcohol or drugs in my life. And I can't live another day without them. And I don't know what my options are. Talk about your just adjustment to those meetings. You know, a lot of people kind of balk at the the spirituality focus. Everybody's talking about God or you hear that people drop that stuff here and there. Um, you grew up going to church and things. Maybe that wasn't threatening, but just the idea of getting in a room full of maybe mostly men talking about their personal failures and things like that. Was there any, did it, was it strange to you? It sounds like you jumped right in and shared from the beginning, but what was it like to get started in all that program? Um, I had zero reluctance. I had zero reluctance. I was in so much emotional pain that I was willing to do whatever I was told. And the men in the meeting kind of wrapped their arms around me and said, and I've had men come up to me since and say, I will never forget the first day you walked in here. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone in so much pain. I mean, they could, you could feel it. Um, and I'd been to meetings previously and I'd done the steps previously. And I'd done, a, you know, I was fearless and thorough and honest and told my sponsor things that I was never going to tell anyone. And I mean that. The first time I did the steps, it took me three hour, three and a half hours to read my fourth step. Like I went all the way back. Right. Um, but it was, it, there was a, just a sense of desperation that I'd never felt before. And when I drove to that meeting, I drove from a beautiful home in a new car after leaving a job that I love, married to a woman that means the world to me. Um, none of that mattered. None of that mattered. There was nothing on the outside that was any longer going to treat the pain on the inside. Wherever that pain was coming from, you know, the, after 12 years of sobriety, I, even during that whole 12 years, somewhere in my head, I knew I was going to drink again, but I was going to drink like a gentleman. The second go around, I was, I knew I was going to burn it to the ground. I didn't, I didn't have any sense of, um, I think maybe when I, when I dipped my toe back in, I was like, I, okay, I'm not going to burn it to the ground. I'm just going to like party on vacation. That was my loophole. Um, but very quickly realized that plan was not a good one. And instead of backing away from that flame, I said, we're going to burn it down. I'm, I'm just, I'm sick of being comfortable. I had a great life, truly. And I was so 
bored in the comfort of my life. I had achieved really quite a bit. And I was like, you know, I'm up for a challenge. Let me just see if I can kind of handicap myself and work through it. And let's create some excitement here by burning it down. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you talked about complete surrender, you know, zero reluctance. That's a man. That is a, I think that's a chosen point of view. You may not have had any other choice than to just give yourself to the fact that you would, you, you know, you're destroying your yourself and your life, but there's some conscious decision there. I can't go in with any, I mean, I don't know. Was it maybe, maybe it wasn't all that intentional. You just, that's just where you were. But I think that's a necessary element when a guy really wants to pull it together is he's got to go in there. I love the phrase from step six entirely ready. Um, how, how did you, and maybe you've been on and off of that entirely ready. How do you completely surrender, have zero reluctance to be entirely ready? My greatest source of shame in that moment was that I had been given gifts from God that if used properly would make the lives of others better. And the thought that I was going to throw that away was horrifying. There's there's nothing else I need from my profession. There's nothing else I need from my family. There's nothing else I need from this world. But I genuinely feel like I have a lot more to give. And if I'm not walking the spiritual light with recovery being my focus, those gifts are wasted and they're not, they're not my gifts. I don't own them. I've been loaned those and I have the free will to choose what to do with those. And it's horrifying to me that I considered walking away from the opportunity to help others for what? For what? So what I had to do was I had to switch my focus. You know, I still am uncomfortable being comfortable. Very uncomfortable when things are going well. I think what a lot of men strive for drives me nuts. Like downtime, chill time, easy. They want it easy and calm. I, you know, I got a home. That's paid off. I got a car with no note. I have money in the bank. My family's doing great. My career's on an upswing. I'm married to a woman that I love and trust. This is fucking horrible. <laughs> like, I believe you. I, I like what, what the fuck are you doing? Find a grenade, pull the pen and let's jazz it up a little bit. Right? Because if I'm not challenged, I don't feel alive. I, 
Yeah. So some guys worried about keeping the lights on or putting food on the table and, and that's his challenge. That's what's keeping him alive. He's, he's operating at this other level. Survival for him means basics, you know, and you, you had, you recovered on everything that mattered that way, but you still had this need to conquer something and go through a battle and challenge and kind of march uphill. And there was no hill to march up. You you were at the top of the mountain already. And so <laughs> to need some, so, Man, was it was it that conscious, or is this no, looking back now? You no. can see this hindsight. Look, I wasn't sitting in my living room with a plate full of food and a beautiful home and a wife that loves me, and I'm like, let's fuck this up. <laughs> no, it was not conscious. I think looking back, I'm able to kind of do an autopsy on it and say those behaviors were insane. What's underlying the insanity? Because like normal people don't behave that way. You know, I, I live with the brain um, where if I set a goal and I reach it, I, I beat myself up for not setting the goal high enough. And if I set a goal and I don't reach it, I beat myself up for not working harder. Where's the win in that? You either reach your goal or you don't. And in both situations, I figured out a way to denigrate myself. So there's no peace in that. There's no peace in that. So what I've had to do is set goals that are unreachable and find joy in the pursuit. That is where I found my peace, is to set goals that are unreachable. Before, my goals were tangible. Pay off your house. Buy a car where you don't need a loan. Send all your kids to college or what, whatever they want to do, but they don't have to take out loans. You're going to provide for that. You know, um, they were all very tangible and all, all, we, all very material. Like there's a win and a loss. There's a balance sheet. But in living a spiritual life, I know that I am never going to reach the goal of being always being kind, compassionate, charitable, forgiving, and not just in my actions, but in my thoughts. I'm at a place now where someone cuts me off in traffic and flips me off and it's their fault. I don't chase them down to let them know how wrong they are. But I still think it in my mind, like I ought to follow that motherfucker <laughs> and give him a piece of my mind. Okay, that's progress. I don't do it, but I still think it. So now let's try and say a guy cuts me off in traffic and flips me off. Maybe that's a guy who's rushing to the hospital because he just got news that his child was in a car accident. Okay. Like, don't even have the thought. Don't even have the negative thought. Don't have the negative emotion. 
find compassion for people. You know, love the unlovable. Because there are plenty of times in my life I've been unlovable and people loved me when I didn't love myself. So who am I to withhold that from another human being? So this is the this is the pursuit that's always challenging the spiritual stuff. So you, you got the financial things set, you got all your kids taken care of. You, you've, you've managed your assets and whatever that's all done. But the thing that you need to be pursuing is love, forgiveness, uh, patience. Those are the kind of things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I'd like to be excellent at being good. Mm. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like I'd like to be excellent at being good. It really, when you think about abusing substances and just self-indulging in any way, that the, the focus is on me and my feelings, but you're talking about walking around in life, being compassionate to other people. Some of my clients, if any of my clients are listening to this, you'll, many of you will recognize something that I talk about um, that I learned from Paul, who said, if you, if you wouldn't trade places with the person, you've got to find some compassion. Mm. And so many of the people that we're mad at, we really don't want to, we, 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 wouldn't, we, we have to be compassionate with where they're coming from. And like you're saying, what is the situation that causes the guy to cut you off? It doesn't even, it doesn't even matter. Your job is to be patient, kind, loving, or whatever. So I love what you're saying that that's such a shift from, the party life, you know, where it's all about me and what's fun for me and what do I like to do and what do I want right now versus taking care of other people, even if protecting them means letting them be. Anyway, I just, I'm really respectful of the, the way that you try to learn that compassion. And you're saying your outward behavior, you, you can manage that. You can keep composure, but you don't even want to have the thought of it. You don't no. want to have the feeling of it. You don't want that to enter your body and soul at all. No. It's disrespectful to God. It's disrespectful to God because God knows all of my shit. He knows all of my sins. He knows all of my lies and all of my dirt. And he's forgiven me. Like the greatest being ever, in my opinion, the greatest being ever in the world knows all all of my garbage and has forgiven me and still loves me unconditionally. How arrogant do I have to be to not be able to bestow that on someone else? And I am like a grain of sand on a cosmic beach, nothing in the universe. I'm a small cog of even that, but I'm going to hold a grudge or keep a resentment against someone when God's not doing that to me. Like that's so arrogant and it's easier said than done. You know, you, you said earlier, you talked, you were talking about the fourth step. It took you three and a half hours to read it. I'm guessing it took you a long, long time to write it and yeah. to consider those things. I remember when I started that process, I thought I don't really have any of this. I don't really. Yeah. <laughs> What are you talking about? You know, a thousand lines later on my spreadsheet, <laughs> you know, my color coded freaking thing yeah. it's listing all of the stuff. So to, to, for guys who aren't familiar, what does that mean? The four step is about uh, searching a fearless, more inventory. Is that right? Um, what was what? 
because that's, you know, the other steps are about <clears throat> coming to, you know, recognize that you have a problem accepting and admitting and so forth. And then it's really looking at you. Yeah. And your character flaws and so forth. What, what was that process like? It takes you three and a half hours to just read all of those things. Um, describe that for us. Yeah. Very intimidating. Very intimidating. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I sat down at the end of a long day, opened up my notebook, and uh, I'm kind of impressed you had a spreadsheet. I wouldn't know how to make a spreadsheet. <laughs> I, I had like a pen and a notebook. And um, really what I did was I went back to my earliest memory that was bothering me. Like my very earliest memory that was bothering me. And I wrote down what the memory was. And then I wrote down who I, who I was mad at. Why was it bothering me? And then I had to look at what part of my own sense of self and security was that affecting. And I use the seven deadly sin. You know, we all know them. If you're an addict and you're listening to this. You violated everyone. So congratulations again, hundred percent on the seven deadly sins test. Go me. But um. Yeah, I just started as far back as I could remember. My first memory was like when I was four years old and I started and I just worked chronologically all the way through, all the way through. And, you know, for me, it was a really uncomfortable process to even go back and relive those things. I mean, from the outside, my upbringing looked awesome. Like, we lived on an acre in downtown Vegas in like a 6,000 square foot house, went to church every Sunday, educated, loving family, Christmas lights up every Christmas. There were some downsides. I don't dwell on it. There were some downsides. Um, I didn't want to go back and even think about that. I didn't want to open those wounds. You know, I had forgiven anyone who had done something horrible to me. Leave it alone. But I, I needed to be fearless and thorough. And so it was a very uncomfortable process for me to go back and tap into those emotions and those memories that I had worked through. You know, my, my um, best friend who's also in recovery who had a similar upbringing to mine. Uh, he said to me one time, he said, I think my parents did the best they could with the tools they had. And I said, I think that's really awesome. He goes, yeah, that costs about 60,000 in therapy to say that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> You know, and I had done that. I'm like, everyone's just doing the best they can. I don't, I don't think my dad ever woke up one morning and said, how can I make this kid's life scary? Yeah. How can I wound my child? How, yeah, can, yeah. how can I make him insecure? You know, I think my dad was a lot better dad to me than his dad was to him. That's generational improvement. 
you know? And I can applaud him for that. And I can also have tremendous gratitude for him because he taught me ways I don't want to be with my children. Because I remember how it feels. So my dad, by doing the best he could, made me a better dad. I love him for that. I love him for that. I don't choose to sit around and piss and moan about how he achieved that. I love him for that. So you're talking about going through these early memories that you're, you're kind of recounting resentments and things and pains and hurts and whatever. And then it starts to t- turn into the things that you had done for other people. And then you have to start making amends and things. Mm. What, what, what kind of things jump out at you on that part of your process? Like some of them were low hanging fruit. Like I remember I got in a fight with a kid in fifth grade and we were fighting in might've even been my front yard and I was getting the best of them. And I just saw a pile of dog shit and I dragged him <laughs> over and r- raked him through the dog shit. And I felt bad about that. I was like, that's not cool. So I tried to track him down, you know, and go, Hey, sorry, I dragged you through the dog shit. And he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, there was another one where there was a Seven Eleven on Rancho in Charleston. A guy named Richard owned it. And my friends and I would go in and someone would distract him and we would just loot the place of candy. Those little Jolly Rancher candies, they were a penny at the time. Um, and I remember it was the first amends I did. I was going to a doctor's meeting down there. It was like right by there. And I go, I got to pull in and see if this guy's even still alive. And I was walking into the 7-Eleven. He was walking out. And I go, Richard? He's like, yeah. Hi, I'm Paul Wilkes. And he goes, hey, Paul, how have you been? I'm like, wow, I was a horrible child. This guy still remembers me. So I told him, you know, I'm, I'm in a program of recovery and part of it is making amends. And he stole this candy from you. And he's like, man, you guys were hoodlums. You're the second guy this week to come here and tell me he <laughs> stole from me and make amends. And I go, yeah, pretty much most of the dudes I hang out with should probably be in this program. And he was really cool about it. He goes, how much candy do you think you stole? And I go, ballpark 500 pieces. <laughs> and he's like, all right, how much were they? I go, they were pennies. They was a penny a piece. He goes, so $5, what year was this? What do you think it's worth now? I go, I don't know. Now they're 25 cents. He, let's say $500. And I reached my pocket to give him $500. He goes, donate it to charity. So I donated it to charity. You know, those, those amends are kind of the low hanging fruit, financial amends. And sorry, I dragged you through dog shit when we were in the (laughs) fifth grade. But like when you have to sit down with family and say, sorry, lied to you. I'm sorry. I didn't show up when I said I was going to show up. Sorry. I, you know, I've never really been like a yeller or a violent guy. That's just, that's part of what I realized didn't work for me growing up. So, but it, it was really difficult sitting down with um, my ex-wife, sitting down with my three children. It was very, very painful, you know, and the manner in which I did it was, you know, I'm here to listen. I want to know what I've done to hurt you. And uh, that, it's very hard not to litigate that, especially when their recollection of it as a child is 
not my recollection of it, but it didn't matter what my recollection was. That's I was not why you were there. You're not I wasn't there to, there to I wasn't there to to litigate it. I was there to listen and genuinely apologize and and ask my children that if I behaved in a manner that hurt them moving forward, would they call me out on it right away? You know, which they've done. So you've done this process with your kids. You've gone back to them and addressed things like this with them. And how did that go? Very painful. Mm. I mean, I remember saying to my son, um, my only goal as a dad was to be a better dad than I had. And he looked me in the eyes. He said, that's a pretty low bar to set for yourself. Damn. Sit with that for a minute. You know, and you're trying to receive that that had to hurt, but you you're trying you're coming at this in a place of openness, so you're just allowing that to be his his position. My goal was to help them heal, and if I had to take a few licks, okay. As a father, my job is to um, help my kids be whole and happy, you know, and. Uh, if I had to take a few lumps to get them closer to that, then okay. But it was tough. You know, the, the wildest part was when I'd go to make amends to someone and I'd explain the process and then I would make amends and they would go, I, I've never even thought of that. And I found that with quite a few amends where Something that's bothering me. I realize that the amends process is a lot about me unloading my shit. And, you know, it's tricky because except for when it's going to cause harm to them or others. So I, I strongly suggest prior to making amends, you get a sponsor and you bounce it off of them. You know, I want to talk about the impact of that. So the, you know, the mentorship, sponsorship, the learning from other people, you go to the meetings and most, most of them don't, you know, they don't allow crosstalk. So you're just, you share and you listen to the person that shares and that's about it. But what's been the value of be involving other people in this? You know, a lot of men just kind of think we're to be a, a masculine man means you handle it. You take care of it by yourself, be self-reliant. And so that doesn't really work when you're trying to, you know, deconstruct your whole life and build it back up again. So talk about the value of other men's influence specifically to like recovery, taking a look at your stuff, um, going through the 12 steps, the regular contact and friendship and things that you've had with that. The greatest change I've had in my program of recovery has resulted in the greatest gifts. And that is saying yes. Same yes. Hey, some guys are getting together to have pizza and watch NASCAR. You want to join us? Yes. Hey, guys are going to grab lunch after the meeting. Yes. You know, my, my wife who's in recovery and has a very strong group of women around her, and she is in some ways um, at times the nucleus of that group. Um, Hey, all of my girls in recovery are going to meet at my friend's house this weekend and she's having a swim party and getting some food and they're bringing their husbands. You want to go? Yes. 
right? Those, the meeting after the meeting is as important as the meeting, if not more so for me. But I wasn't, I never had an interest in doing that. I was going to meetings to check a box. Check, did Did, it. Did my duty for the day, yep. Now I can go back to being a self-centered prick. (laughs) Right? And now it's like, crazy how many times just even yesterday we we woke up i don't know what it is but i've been getting up early i usually can sleep till noon if i don't set an alarm i'm in bed till noon because i'm i am chronically exhausted from my job um i've been getting up like 6 45 6 50 yesterday get up hang out have some coffee, walk the dogs, come home, do a killer workout, sit in the jacuzzi, do a cold plunge. And all I'm thinking about is going back to bed. My wife says, hey, you want to go to a meeting? Yes. You know? Yes. Go. Even if you learn nothing, which you have to work hard to spend an hour in a room full of alcoholics and not learn something. Like you have to be committed to your ignorance to not learn something. But it's an hour. And it's an hour I get to hang out with her. And it's an hour I get to like be around other people with a busted brain like mine. I love addicts and alcoholics. I love us. I do. Like, there's just something about us, you know? I just laugh because I think all of my friends are addicts too, and <laughs> most are working on sobriety and recovery. But you um, talked about one time you were a presenter at a medical continuing ed thing or something, some kind of big medical conference. Mm-hmm. And you talked about standing up and talking about AA. So the openness even here. You know, a lot of what keeps us stuck is shame and hiding, you know, the concealment of our problems. Here you you are on a podcast and this is, you know, we don't have a huge audience, but people are going to see this. You're talking about using Coke and drinking alcohol to a point of destructive, uh, you know, why are you so open about this? Has it ever created any problems for you to tell your truth and just be your your normal human self, Um, even standing up at a at a conference where you were kind of one of the honored speakers, mm-hmm. you're talking about alcoholism. Yep. I'm just, I love that. But how do you do that? And what's been the impact of that? Fuck shame. Fuck shame. Fuck fear. You think I'm going to be afraid that I'm going to get up and share my story of Figuring out a way to treat on a daily basis a lethal disease and someone doesn't want to be a part of my life because of that. Good. Good. It's self-selecting. I don't want people in my life who are going to judge me harshly for being fallible. 
I don't look or I try not to look at what people have done to get themselves knocked down. I look at what they did once they were down. What did you do? It's why I have very little tolerance for people who come in with a list of excuses for why they can't get better or why they can't do better. And I'm not just talking about alcoholism and drug addiction. I'm talking about life. If you have two working hands and two working legs and a brain that's working at 50% capacity, grind. Grind. Get it done. And so if I stand up in a medical conference and I share my story and I remember that medical conference, there were 2,600 people in the audience and they had to fill out an evaluation at the end. And I got a copy of all the scores and then I got about 17 pages of comments that people had written. And like 16 pages were, this changed my life. I have a son who's struggling with addiction. I found compassion for him. Wow, what a testament to spirituality. The last page was, that's an hour of my life I'll never get back. I didn't need to hear this guy whine. I didn't, what comments do you think I remember? The last page, right? That's my brain. But that's all right. Not everyone's going to like me. I don't like everyone. Not everyone's going to respect the struggle. That's okay. I'm not for everyone. I'm not for everyone. I'm okay with that. I want to love the people who love me. I want to love the people who are rooting for me. You want to know who your friends are? When you do something admirable, look around. Pay attention to the people who aren't clapping. Well, you've done so many admirable things. And something I know about you is you just seem to love life. And I see people's temperaments and their personalities and just kind of their makeup. And some people are just more extroverted and whatever. But it seems like maybe through your maturity and wisdom and the and the failures and successes that you had, you, you're just walking around trying to see the good. You're one of the most pleasant people I've met. I know Thank you. you. And I'm sure you get pissy and irritable and mad and tired and just like everyone. But you seem to see life as a gift. You have as much gratitude, you know, you have more gratitude than any rich guy I've ever, I've ever mm. known. I mean, you just seem to really be appreciative of, of all the things that come. You've got a, you've got a fun personality. Um, people, most people that know you love you. Um, and you're well known around here. What, if you could take away from your recovery process, things in the 12 step literature, you know, phrases or thoughts or ideas that have been the most significant to you and things that you would share to a guy who's standing on the doorstep of, of looking at either, you know, he, he's saying, I, I can't live another day with this mm. and I can't live another day without it. If there's a man listening who was in, in a similar situation that you were in, what's your best, what, what are your best points of wisdom for a man in that situation? Wow. Um,
I think the most important thing that a man can bring to recovery is self-forgiveness. I think forgiving oneself for all the unforgivable things we've done allows us to consider the potential for a better life. Because I think a lot of us believe we don't deserve it. A lot of us believe we don't deserve it. I have a really good friend. His name's Mike V. Um, loud New Yorker, very polarizing. I don't know many people when you bring up his name, they go, oh yeah, I don't really have an opinion about that guy. People are always like, that dude's the goat. Or if I ever hear his voice, I'm going to poke out my eardrums. He happens to be one of my boys. I love him. And uh, I had so much shame when I came back. I was so sad. And I remember he looked at me and he goes, put down the stick. Put down the stick. Stop beating yourself up. You think God's forgiven you? But yeah. Who are you to question God's judgment? If God thinks you're forgivable, you probably ought to consider it. It's hard. Really, really hard. But I would say considering that you are forgivable and then maybe the the second most important thing and it may it might even be the first most important thing is make a decision to get on get into recovery based on how you feel not on how things look because I think, unfortunately, a lot of men die of this disease because things look pretty good on the outside. And if you're an addict or you're an alcoholic and you woke up today, you're winning. Because statistically, about 17,000 of us did not. We're the lucky ones. There's a chance. There's a chance that you can find peace. You're lucky. Really appreciate you being here today. Um, I just want to end on maybe just some a, a generic topic, and that's just about this, you know, love for life. So you're a deep, you're a deep, thoughtful impressive guy you're an introspective person you're writing these things out you're doing prayers and meditations and you're going to meetings and you're doing all this kind of internal work but you're also fun <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you so i'm sure that was a really blast when you were using and drinking and stuff but seriously though man i i've seen you interact with little kids and just how do you, where do you get that part of your, of your life? Is, is that just part of your genetic loading or what, how do you, 
have such a lighthearted way and the heavy, serious stuff like mm. that. You're, you're one, one of the best men I've ever seen Thank you. in terms of just this alpha energy. You're kind of always operating at a high level, always kind of coming out of your best. How do you have so much fun, lighthearted way about you? So I was born October 17th, 1966. And I was born prematurely. And when the doctor handed me to my mom, he said, spend as much time with him as you can because he's not going to live. And I was placed in an incubator. And if you take a deep breath, your ribs go out. I would take a breath and my ribs would go in because my lungs were so underdeveloped. And every breath, my mom would sit there and go, breathe, breathe, please breathe. And when I was finally discharged from the hospital, my pediatrician had to put his finger on the scale to make me five pounds so I could go home. And the pediatrician said to my mom, buckle your seatbelt. This kid fought harder than any baby I've ever delivered. He's here for a reason. I don't know what it is. He's going to do everything 100%. He's going to love hard. He's going to hate hard. He's going to work hard. He's going to play hard. Every day I have on this earth. My mom shared that story with me, and it had a profound impact. Every day I have on this earth is a bonus. I wasn't supposed to be here. He's one of the best Doctors in Washington, D.C. at the time. I was born in Bethesda, Maryland. Very renowned doctor. He said, I'm sorry, he's not. Every day I have on earth is icing on the cake. Now, I think that's true for all of us. You know, what are you going to do with the 16 hours or 18 hours you have ahead of you when you wake up? That's a choice. That's a choice. Our minds are more powerful than we give them credit for. And when I start to go dark, I make a choice. Nope, not today. Mm-mm. There's too much good out there. You know, they, they just did a study which showed that the same part of the brain that generates anxiety is the exact same part of the brain that generates gratitude. And it can only function in one of the two. It can't function in both at the same time. So when I start getting anxious, uh-uh, gratitude. When I start getting depressed, stop that gratitude. And when you live in gratitude, for me, I have an obligation to share that. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I really believe that I would not trade my life for anyone's. I really wouldn't. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, or any of the gazillionaires or that there's not a man I've met with whom I'd trade lives. And it has very little to do with the number of zeros in my bank account and has a lot to do with being loved unconditionally and being able to return that unconditional love to the people who bestow it upon me. 
whether that's stranger I just met at the grocery store who I can try and make smile or my wife that I get to go to sleep next to every night and wake up next to every morning or somewhere in between. I have the choice to make my daily interactions with others either pleasant or unpleasant. I'll choose pleasant every time. It's awesome. I love to laugh. I love to see other people smile. Man, I love your story. I love your example. You know, I think some of the things that we learn here as we wrap up is just that this this stuff is no respecter of persons. It doesn't you don't have to have deep emotional trauma or pain. You don't have to have grown up within a bad family. Parents were married 50 years. Dad was a physician, well-known, respected family in Acre in Las Vegas. Like, no, what they don't even make those. Right. When he said that, that may not people in the country may not understand that that's not normal. <laughs> right. So you had this, this, there was a lot of uh, blessing, I guess, in your life. And then still, you know, just as a, as a young, from 12 years old, 15 years old, this started to become a problem and start affecting relationships. It made you unavailable. And that's the stuff that hurt. And when you started turning this around, you had no, you had zero reluctance to go in. Mm. You had zero, uh, hesitation. You, you, you had no choice, um, but to go in and be humble. You did all this work to look at amends. I mean, even to come to each one of your children and talk about your failures, not to correct the record, not to, not to make you, not to clear your name, but to hear them and help them heal. And I'm guessing that's going to be an ongoing process. That's the nature of this thing. We're not done. Our character flaws aren't, we still have to keep doing this work. And so, I just really appreciate you, man. This guy's really well known around town. I, uh, I just, I hear about you <laughs> three times a week from people that you've worked with or friends of yours that I know are just, it, it is, it's, it's amazing to me the impact that you've had. You've delivered 14,000 children, not ordinary births, not ordinary circumstances. And uh, you talked about your, talents and gifts and that this disease, if you don't manage it and get control of yourself and, and, and correct your, who you, who you had been, that you wouldn't be able to use your talents that God was giving you. That, that would be an offense to him. You guys, this is how you do it. This man is, uh, I've talked a lot before. People ask me, why do you use the word alpha? That's such a dumb thing and whatever. And to me, that is uh, best encapsulated in the book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And when I look at someone like Dr. Paul Wilkes, here's a king. He's a man who is generously giving to his kingdom, taking care of his people. He's built a huge, very successful practice. He's done well uh, for his, his family and, and done well in his personal pursuits that way. So he's a king, he's a warrior, he's fighting for things. He's fighting for causes. He's done so many charitable, like philanthropical kinds of things. Um, just there's story after story. We could, I mean, you, there's a long career of doing those things. He's a magician because he has specialized knowledge. When a child is supposed to be, you know, born uh, with challenges or complications, he takes care of that. We, we think we're, you know, I, I had a hard time setting up my my lights and camera today. <laughs> 
this dude is bringing human beings into the planet, like under the worst circumstances ever. And he just wants to be more available. He wants to include everybody in the room. He's just wants to take accountability. And then all the while he's kind of singing and dancing. Now you should have heard what he was saying when he walked into my office. So <laughs> I just, I really respect you, man. You're the type of person that I want to be like. Thank and you. part of that is from the things that you've told me about the other men that you wanted to be like them and the things you've learned, including even, you know, your father and people in the program that you've learned from and that have corrected you half of what you've said ever to me, I, I've repeated, I've mm. talked about with other people, the, prin the, the principles and things that you've taught. Um, I've internalized that for myself. I've taught my own children things that I've heard you say. Mm. So I just know that your impact man is, is everlasting. It's never going to go away. Not just through your own personal relationships like family, but there's 14,000. It's going to choke me up. Damn it. 14,000 kids out there who might not be here um, if you weren't using your gifts and talents. King, warrior, magician, lover, this dude is alpha all the way. It's very humbling to just sit down with you. I thank you for your time. And you guys, until next time, no excuses. Alpha up. Oh, boy, that was awesome, dude. <laughs>